This is Tomorrow Today, Playing with Our Future, Part 1 with Hawk Robinson. You know I'm a psychologist, and I've been thinking about human behaviors and how people think for a long, long time. And one of the things that always sort of intrigued me is the notion of games. You know, it, it strikes me that we're probably the only species, I'm guessing the only species, but I think we're the only species where we take something that could be easy and we intentionally make it difficult and we call that fun. All we have to do then is keep score, keep count somehow, and difficult tests become easy for us. You know, think about it. If you, I don't know, uh, took a, a basket and put it at waist level and made it 12 feet around and you didn't have to bounce the ball up and down, even I could get the thing in the hoop. But what do we do? We take that basket, we put it 150 feet in the air, we make it the size of a thimble, and you have to bounce up and down and bounce up and down and then throw it, and that's considered fun, right? It's a strange thing when you think about it that we enjoy taking things that are easy, making them hard just for fun. Uh, And that's something that struck me my whole life. I, I, I didn't, I was never a really competitive kid. Uh, not with team sports or anything like that anyway. I was a bit of an introvert. I didn't play a lot of games. I didn't play well with others. Uh, I was a homebody. I I read books. I hung out uh, in the libraries. Uh, Really, I was that kid. Until 1972. 1972, my life changed with a game that Atari put out called Pong. And Pong, if you've never played it, Pong is, by today's standard, it's pathetic, right? It was these two little, uh, uh, I don't know, paddles on either side of the screen, and a little dot would go back and forth. Oh, my gosh, I became addicted to this thing. I could play Pong for hours and hours and hours. I loved Pong. I became Pong Master, King of the Universe. And I would play this thing against the machine. I would play it with buddies. I would play both controls. I loved it. I was obsessed with it. And that started my recognition, my realization of how much games can suck you in. And it's something that... I'm not a gamer per se, but like all of you, I still get stuck in. You know, I, the other day uh, I was sitting on the couch and, and my wife was watching television and that's our thing. She'll watch TV. She loves watching uh, the home renovation shows and the murder shows, which should freak me out a lot because, you know, it's either going to cost me a lot of money or cost me other things. But when she watches these shows, I like to sit and read uh, or well, on this evening, I was playing chess, and she doesn't know. I'm, it's on the Kindle, so whether I'm reading a book or playing a game, and then the, I lost the game. And so all she knows is I start yelling at the laptop, damn it, damn it, I can't believe I did that, damn it, what's going on? And she's thinking, maybe I saw an email or something. I lost the game because of a stupid blunder. She said, okay. If you can't control yourself, you're not going to be allowed to play anymore. (laughs) It was so reminiscent of my childhood, still getting stuck in, right? Why? Because of this this sort of competitive nature we have, this this surge of uh, dopamine, of adrenaline that we get when we engage in these games, it becomes very satisfying to be able to play games. It's something that we used to think about just, you know, points, badges, and leaderboards, Uh, And and that became what we would strive toward. But 
I did my undergraduate work at the University of Nevada in Reno, of all places, where we studied behavioral psychology and talked a lot about how these same concepts that we have from gaming, how we could use those and concepts from behavioral psychology to actually get people to engage to a greater or lesser frequency with gambling, with games, which gambling itself is potentially an addiction. And so are we creating an addiction on top of the addiction through these games? I don't know. This was at the beginning of video poker and some of those, uh, video 21, uh, those kind of games. And I've been thinking about and wrestling with these things for years ever since that. And I've been, uh, quite candidly, this is a very selfish episode because I've been dying to talk to someone who knows a whole lot more than me about this. And holy cow, did I get lucky. Um, my guest today is Hawk Robinson. Hawk is, and I'm going to tell you his background because I, I suspect he's too modest to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Hawk is an innovator in technology, education, and health he is a, by trade, a music and recreational therapist. He has been called the grandfather of therapeutic gaming, though he's not nearly old enough to be called that, though he does have a grandchild. Uh, he is, uh, I don't know, he, he's that guy who should have been on the Dos Equis commercial, right? The most interesting man in the world. He's an adventurer, an advocate, a consultant, a developer, an educator, an entrepreneur, an executive, an explorer, an innovator, a mentor, a researcher, a teacher, a technologist. And I understand he plays over 20 instruments. Uh, this guy is is the quintessential Renaissance man, Renaissance person. Uh, he, he's a multi-industry innovator with decades of groundbreaking experience. But what he really excels at, Hawk is the guy you call when your leader wants to take that harebrained idea they have and turn it into a successful, engaging, nearly irresistible technology. That's when they call Hawk. Hawk, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for having me, and uh, wow, thank you for that intro. <laughs> <laughs> See, you didn't know how awesome you really are. We were joking before we got on air. I'll tell you, Hawk, uh, we were having some problem with the audio, and uh, he was doing the uh, superhero uh, impersonation. I said, oh, we should totally run with that. Oh, Sergeant Slaughter here, yeah. <laughs> Sergeant Slaughter, there you go, exactly. Because, you know, he is like, he's like, I'm talking to a real-life avatar here. <laughs> it's, it's very cool, uh, but... Before we even get into the conversation, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just to contextualize things a little bit, Hawk, would you share, how did you come, you know, I, I mentioned how I came to games and gaming and, and this recognition of how important this is. Tell me your story. Okay. And I'll just first kind of preface it with a little bit of what you said there. I actually, uh, unlike you, I was involved with sports and martial arts and lots of recreational activities, et cetera. And... Then when I, 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 you know, I'm six foot seven now, I used to be six, nine. <laughs> so I played basketball and volleyball and rugby and all these other things. And I was quite good at martial arts and Aikido and Kung Fu and, and a few other styles and, and started early when I was about four years old in, in San Francisco. Um, but in 77, uh, when my parents were divorcing, we moved to Utah. Uh, I had a cousin who was visiting, who introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons and, uh, that was a pivotal moment. I wouldn't really realize that until decades later. Sure. But it really started uh, adding a whole other thing that... So in the tech industry, there's a thousand or so other people at about my level in the tech world worldwide, right? I, I mean, that, and that's still pretty rarefied. But I was in CIO magazine and such. They talked about the, the, the thousand best CIOs and stuff like that 20 years ago during the dot-com boom. 
But in this industry, it's a new growing industry with the role-playing game side and also recreation therapy and such. So when he introduced me to D&D, and it was the original D&D, mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, this is completely different than all these other activities. Which, by the way, you're not the typical guy we imagined, right? Back in the day when we thought about a D&D player, it was, you know, that that nearly translucent skin kid who never left the basement, but you're actively engaged in the the virtual, the real world, uh, the in vivo world, that carbon-based world, and yet you get attracted. So, but but before you go on with the, where it took you, why? What, what sucked you in? Why D&D? If you're already an athlete, you're a martial artist, where's the draw? Well, first of all, it was the first really exciting cooperative activity. Everything else was, like you were talking about, competitive. And this was totally cooperative and yet really engaging. And usually when you you hear people talk about cooperative, Mm -hmm. then, for example, in the recreation therapy books when I was studying recreation therapy, one of the first things that hit me was there is a lack of intrinsically motivating cooperative activities that will keep people engaged if they don't have uh, competition and or an extrinsic reward. And there needed to be more of those activities, and especially tabletop, but as well as live action electronic. And and that was what struck me back in 77. I was like, wow, this is completely different. It also just lit up a side of me that hadn't been getting hit before with the narrative. And, and right, because sports and martial arts and all of that, there isn't really that verbal social narrative thing going on. Right, right. So there, it was just so different from everything else I'd been experiencing. I was doing outdoor survivalism, et cetera, and it was all completely different. So if I were to look back through your eyes now at the kid you, right? We're looking back now at, at Kid Hawk. Would you say that was a positive formative experience? Would you say, if you had it all to do over again, would you put that kid of you and say, you know what, we're always, uh, I think the bias is to say, stop spending so much time staring at a video screen, go outside and play with a ball. Uh, And and look, uh, and I'll tell you, let me just bias this. Um, I had the same thing in my household. Uh, My son got really into the massively multiplayer online games when they were like first really coming on the scene. He's, you know, in his 30s now, but Mm -hmm. this is uh, hopefully, well, actually he's, I think he still is engaged in that world, which I think is a very cool thing. Uh, But his mom and I were a little bit worried, right? Is like, ah, should we be, and he was into martial arts also. He actually, you know, got his first black belt at 12 and he fought competitively and he was in, I'm a very social guy, but he spent a lot of time uh, playing these games. And I'll tell you, we came out of it realizing that they gave him things they he might not have had otherwise. You were talking about, you know, working collaboratively with others. We saw increases in focus and collaboration, cooperation, teaming, but even like multicultural awareness. He was playing with kids, and that's what and it really dawned on us. This might be a great thing is he had team members who were in Germany and Japan and Spain, people he would never have interacted, had the opportunity to interact with formally and, and making commitments to them. So, you know, learning this sense of selflessness, this pride, this fun. I don't know. It, and that's, again, never having been a gamer, I'm just looking at this from the cheap seats. And I'm not an expert. So I think this is so fascinating. I agree. <laughs> I spent a ludicrous amount of my life researching this. Uh, so yeah, so 77, my cousin introduced me. Uh, that, the spark was lit. I, I wasn't like 
intensely gaming after that, but I was like, oh, I want to try more of this, I want to try more of this. So I started arranging games at libraries, game stores. And this is still board-based D&D at this time, right? This is the original Dungeons and Dragons, gotcha. the first, the very original Brown Book edition. Roger. And then Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was coming out right around 77, 78, so you had this, this new mm-hmm. uh, Im- improved version of it. So I was getting more and more into that. I was still doing all these other activities. And when I was about, about 79, I started getting into software development. And one of the first early programs I did, partly w- was because I wanted to do computer graphics, but was programs that would help with role-playing gaming. So dice rollers, sure. uh, music composed by computer, because I thought they would all help the... So I started basically in 79 researching how to improve the RPG experience. But it also was the beginning of my tech career. Oh, okay. That's interesting. By 82, I, I got my first paid programming gig. Uh, I was writing inventory and accounting software for video rental store. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> a little bit of a departure, but uh, because, you know, being a CPA is just as much fun. But... Um, uh, what I'm hearing you say is when you first got into this, and, and my, I don't know, bias tends to be, I tend to think that the early days of of computer games were people who saw these board games and wanted to make them virtual. What you're saying is you wanted to create augmenting opportunities for the board games. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. To enhance the tabletop yeah, experience, as well as create the games themselves. So text-based games like Zork, et cetera. That's cool. And also it was, 79 was when I first got on BBSs and what would later be called the internet uh, through the University of Utah and such. I had connections there. So I got to meet people I hear about in Germany, Australia. I didn't know, in hindsight, these were hacker groups. (laughs) And (laughs) later I went into information security and everything. So that's a whole other topic. But... um, and I have papers on information security. But but yeah, I was interfacing with the hacker groups in Germany and Australia and all of that back in 79, thanks to the wonders of what would be the internet. And so that was really when I first started trying to figure out how can I maximize this RPG experience? And, and again, I was nine years old, eight, nine years old at the time. RPG for those playing along at home? Role-playing game. Okay. And there are four major variants in, in, in my model. You've got the tabletop, which is the original. You have the uh, live action, like LARPs and, and variations like that. You have electronics, which are video games, VR, etc. And then you have hybrids that are kind of mixes between the classic tabletop and like card games or board games or electronic games or VR, all the different mixes for those hybrids. And LARP is live action role play? Live action role playing. There are non-combat and combat types. The combat types range from soft boffer combat, which is like just very soft padded weapons, to more intense uh, equipment, even bare, uh, uh, dull steel. Uh, the SCA often, the Society for Creative Anachronism, often gets lumped together as a LARP, uh, but the, they push back like, no, 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 it's a reenactment community. We are not a LARP. Don't call us a LARP. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to get into where, where we draw the lines between that and, you know, the, the uh, Renaissance players, cosplay in general. And I think that's for a later conversation. Right. That's a blurry line. And my model, I have this whole RPG model, the, the, the quintessential RPG and RPG formats model, which shows the blurry lines between these. There's a lot of debate about exactly where does it cut off between an RPG and just an action game or something like that, action adventure game. Yeah. So that that was how that started to grow. Then in... 82, the media was really starting to ramp up the negative 
uh, talk about role-playing games and gamers, and we're really starting to do the stereotypes. Now, prior to about 82, 83, most of the gamers I knew were diverse in culture. I came from California, moved to Utah, was in a lot of other states. And I saw you know, diversity of demographics in those gaming groups. They were roughly half and half male, female. Uh, I generally played with people much older than myself. Uh, that's just that's just been my whole life. Uh, I think it's interesting. Most people think of people who engage in games as as men, uh, as boys, as as male. Uh, really, so even going back to the days of board games, you saw before eighty two, eighty three. Really, okay. It was about half and half male, female in Utah and California in the groups I was gaming with at the time. And and there 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 was now like Utah was very white at the time, so we usually only had one or two people that were not you know, of Caucasian. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a little bit homogeneous. Yeah. They were there. They were about statistically representative for the for where I was in California. It was often white was the minority where I was in the Bay Area and such. Sure, but. Um, yeah, it was only after about 83 I started to see that change. So in 82, Mazes and Monsters with Tom Hanks came out of that made-for-TV movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also by then, the William Deere, uh, uh, missing, the case of the, the missing dungeon master of William, of, of Egbert the, the third missing from the college and such. And people can, and so Mazes and Monsters conflated a couple of cases together, uh, from the whole steam tunnels, legends, and all of that uh, coming from that. And so this was the media bit by bit grabbing little sensationalized pieces, pointing to it as the cause of games and gamers. And you started to get this narrative that role-playing gamers are freaks, geeks, losers, living in their mother's basement, all male, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then to pile on, we then have... Bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, B-A-D-D, because of Mothers Against Drunk Driving at the time, uh, from Patricia Pulling and Dr. Thomas Radecki, a psychiatrist. They came together after Patricia Pulling's son committed suicide, uh, Bink. Right. And she was all over the media. They were very, very effective in their media outreach. I remember that very distinctly. And there was almost this attempt to create a confluence with uh, Satanism for a little while there. Oh, right? it wasn't an almost. It wasn't yeah. an almost. <laughs> it was openly, her book very specifically, she has books about this, very specifically states that she believed role-playing games to be a gateway, or at least especially Dungeons and Dragons, to be a gateway to the occult and to Satanism. Which, by the way, they were saying about Ouija boards back in the 1940s and 30s. And rock and roll and everything, right. This is just... I, I still think that might be true of rock and roll, so that's... that's, that's yeah. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> the Bee Gees, man. No, no, I'm sorry. That was disco. Disco might be the devil's music. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so that really started to gain traction, and I saw... A dramatic, and so I was. I was in uh, high school at the time, and I was starting to run into stigma. I was starting to run into people that, if they found out I was a gamer, they would have a negative attitude, and negative epithets were thrown, and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, at one point for school, I wrote an eight-page essay, and they asked me to read it in front of the whole school. It was on current events and such, on the known effects of role-playing games. So that was my first paper. Now, there wasn't a lot available at the time. There was almost no research right. on the effects of role-playing games, so I had to mostly extrapolate from other tabletop games. You didn't just go to Wikipedia and copy and paste yeah, from Wikipedia? Yeah, didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Did not exist. I had to do old-school library, use the Dewey Decimal System and index cards. 
<laughs> I did have I did have you know DARPANET, ARPANET early access through the University of Utah, so I had pretty good resources. Yeah. for the time, and there really wasn't much. But there wasn't anything there to find. I was there too, and it was you know you and me talking to each other, and that was basically it, right? Right. Don't worry, right. I'm fine. Well, we're done for the day. Uh, but fast, jump me forward a little bit. Help me cross the chasm, and then say this is when you do your first paper, and you start really thinking about the. You're taking not just the games themselves seriously, but you're taking more of a meta perspective um, is what I'm hearing, right? You're stepping back right. and you're looking at I'm starting to stand back and look at it. Maybe it's just how my brain works. Uh, even to this day, as Im involved as I am with both tech and the gaming community, I still feel very much not fully part of the geek culture bubble because I seem to constantly be aware of geek culture bubble issues that when I speak to people in that bubble, they're unaware of. So I kind of have one leg in and one leg out because of my other experience. So you're taking almost this anthropologic view, I mean, not, not to misquote you, but you're, you're standing, up, and I don't mean above in a, a superiority sense, but you're standing and looking at this from outside of it while being an active participant to some extent, right? Right. So you're, you know, this is engaged, actionable ethnography, right? Exactly, exactly. So I was asking questions that others in the community and industry were not asking. Yeah. And, and still to this day, that still seems to be, to be happening a lot. Well, give me an example of that, though. Like, what are the questions that you think, what I always think is most interesting in most fields are the questions that aren't being asked. What are those, do you think? What are, what are the things that, and, and I, I know we're jumping a lot forward here, but that's okay. We'll catch up to ourselves later. Well, I can actually help answer some of those just by giving you kind of the timeline here. So in yeah. response to the anti-gaming movement, I wrote that paper that got some attention, that got some response, and I got some people joining gaming who before were afraid of it, including female gamers. Then in 85, I had the opportunity to start teaching a class five days a week as last period. They, they lost their drama teacher because the, the <laughs> teacher got a chance to go be a director in Broadway. I mean, what teacher's going to say no to that? Exactly, yeah. Right. Exactly. I can teach high school brats, but I'd rather direct. There you go. <laughs> right. And it was a school for gifted and talented children. It's called Realms of Inquiry in Utah. It's a great school. Okay. And uh, so they, had, they just turned it into a study hall for a while while they looked for a new uh, instructor. And I proposed, well, how about role-playing game class? And went to the headmaster. I had to write up a whole curricula, and they let me do it. So five days a week, you could either go to study hall Man. or Hawk's role-playing game class. How open-minded that headmaster? Really? I mean, this is back in the 80s, right? Yeah. Realms is a really exceptional school. We would do things like... Again, wonderful formative period. We would be rappelling off the side of the school building to build confidence and, and, and competence and, and, and learn how to work with others. We would go on survival trips in southern Utah. They would do a, a month-long exchange student thing in Mexico, uh, which my brother went to. Uh, wonderful. They're still active. When I was rappelling off the buildings and doing you know confidence building and camping and going to different places was because the drill sergeant was telling me to right back in the 80s but sure. <laughs> yeah my dad was military my dad was in the korean war and he was a drill sergeant and in intelligence at one point so that was fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so so that school was an unusual school but it was the beginning of seeing how role-playing games might apply in an educational setting and to achieve educational goals even pedagogical approaches and so what it started out as was just introducing people to role-playing games and the variety of genres, right? One of the things usually stereotype is just fantasy sci-fi, 
maybe horror, those superheroes, et cetera, get included. Mm -hmm. But, and this continues this day, there's a shortage of, like you were talking about your wife, of reality-based and procedural gaming. There, there's a real shortage in the role-playing gaming industry, which I think creates an artificial barrier to entry for more adoption. And so just introducing people that there's more variety to it than just the, the typical D&D-isms, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek and others. And now you're getting into it, and again, I know we're moving forward, and I do want to uh, touch on this with you eventually, but you're getting into, like, uh, Jane McGonagall's work, right? And, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with her. Yes. Love her. Love her. You know, the, if anyone listening hasn't seen her TED Talks or what McGonagall actually brings up for me are some real-world implications, applications, uh, opportunities for gaming. And, and I want you to run some of those things by you when we had this chance and, and see what you think. But yes. that said, let's get back. I, I made a couple of notes, so I'll make sure we won't lose these threads. But please continue. So we're now in uh, – you're, you're teaching, uh, you know, an alternative to study hall – or, right, Who, who's not taking this, right? It's like high school class. Well, at first there was resistance, especially from the girls, because by then the myths about gamers and gaming were at getting towards the peak. It was the late 80s that it reached a peak. Yeah. So you can watch photos of D&D clubs in 1982. It's like, it's like 1979, you have like 12 people. 80, you have like 20 people. 81, you have 300 people in the D&D club in a, in a typical elementary or high school setting. Then you start to watch in 84 and 85 as the numbers start shrinking down. And by the late 80s, the D&D clubs are banned. You're no longer allowed to do role-playing gaming at schools. Yeah. Bad, B-A-D-D was very effective. Uh, so that, and, you know, that, it, the, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, 60 Minutes, Geraldo Rivera, Donahue, many, many others piled on uh, helping feed this misinformation, which spread throughout Europe and elsewhere. Wait, Geraldo uh, and Donahue are being opportunistic? Shocker, wow. yes. <laughs> but the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you know, they were, it's yeah. 60 Minutes. I mean, you know, th these are people were really listening to what they had to say, and unfortunately there was a lot of misinformation. And, it, and there were lawsuits. Was there anything – I mean, look, there were, of course there was that the one case uh, that you'd mentioned. Was there anything of substance that came out of this? Really? Bad claimed that – Role-playing games cause suicide and homicide and antisocial behavior. And they listed from uh, about 120 or so suicides, and then they just kept adding to that number that they claimed were caused by interest in Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games. Uh, we have, uh, at RPG Research, we have the world's largest uh, knowledge base uh, on media's, well, really on the effects of role-playing games, but also we have from the Paul Cardwell estate he tracked the media's representation of all gaming, tabletop games and such, from 1970 until he passed away two years ago. And that included uh, media's representation and claims about these. Yeah. So people believed what Bad had to say because Dr. Thomas Rudecki would help testify. There was something called the Dungeons and Dragons defense in courts that people who committed a crime would claim, well, D&D made me do it. And Rudecki and Pulling would testify in these hearings. Now, it's notable that not a single case ever bought into that. They never, well, no jury ever acquitted anyone with that defense. To that point, I mean, people have gotten off and have effectively uh, beat the rap by claiming Twinkies made them do it. I mean, I'm, I'm not being facetious here. Right, exactly. And, and the other part about that that strikes me is, look, I, I wouldn't for a minute diminish uh, the impact that anything could have on suicidal behaviors. Uh, we do work around this very issue. But- 
to me, claiming that D&D and board games cause suicide is tantamount to saying ice cream causes hot weather. Right. Right. There, there's a third variable there. When you're talking about, you know, troubled adolescence. Correlation versus causality. Exactly. And exactly right. First thing they teach you in Stats 101, correlation does not mean yep. causation. Exactly. And so, yeah, which has got to make you wonder. But Right. Well, and if you look at the cases they pointed to, all of them, even prior to being introduced to role-playing gaming, had behavioral and or mental health issues, substance dependencies, et cetera. Right. So those are much more likely exacerbators uh, and explanations. And that's going to be uh, a subject for later part of our conversation also, is talking about sort of the psychological implications uh, of some of these things yes. and how the community, the, uh, the psychological community is viewing some of these things. But you have, well, you had bad, which is an awesome acronym, uh, when you had bad railing against games on the one hand, now you have people like uh, Jane McGonigal who are saying, we're not playing nearly enough video games. Right. She's talking about we should like triple, literally, the amount of time we spend in video games. And so yeah, that, that's quite a departure, right? We've gone from we got to get kids away from these board games mm -hmm. to then uh, we worried about children playing with video games mm -hmm. to now we're at a point where we need to, you know, more gaming, more gaming. Uh, it's a very interesting transition to me. It is, and there are caveats to that that we can talk about a little later. Um, because like anything, any modality, there are pros and cons. And, you know, the key thing always is life balance, right? As a recreational therapist, we're really big about biopsychosocial life balance. So some of the other questions that, were, that came up over time is in 89, I had the opportunity to run a role-playing, tabletop role-playing game for incarcerated populations. And I literally had at my game table uh, African-American and Hispanic gang members at the same table who had just the week before been in a stabbing cool. fight in the jail. Right. Um, Vietnamese gang members, um, white supremacist, uh, uh, Native American Navajo, everybody just called him chief. I had about 12 gamers at my table. Collaborating for who can get the magic potion and the sort of equa, right. <laughs> nobody, nobody attacking anyone or even threatening to, they were in it. They really, they never experienced anything like it before. And it, you know, they were on lockdown, so all their other activities were, were not available anyway. Yeah. So I had this rare opportunity to take them through this, and it was really remarkable. And I, and I was like, okay, I need to kind of take a break. We've been going six hours. They're like, no, please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break. We'll come back in a bit. The murderer is asking if you'll keep going. You say yes. <laughs> Did you not see Ghostbusters? <laughs> Uh, so that was my first opportunity to do that. And what I saw there was part of it is, and this is related to bleed theory, uh, related to the magic circle, the alibi of the character, playing another character, the social contract of what behaviors are in character, out of character, allowing a separation, a buffer between the real world and the, and the conflict going on there and allowing to set that aside and get along with each other in this fantasy setting all because of agreeing that, okay, we're going to set aside all this real-world stuff. Don't bring your work stuff into the game, etc. It's all related to bleed theory. And we're going to set aside all our hatred and animosity and everything and focus on this activity together and work cooperatively. But let me be devil's advocate here, just say what, that's one of the challenges people have often with gaming and the notion of gaming is this idea of escapism. Yes. Of yes. not connecting with reality, of of 
going into right this alternative, not real, a which I think is code for not consequential, not important, mm-hmm. uh, trivial, truly escapism. Uh, so, what do we say to that? McGonagall sums it up beautifully. There's a more technical response, but I love McGonagall's response to that, which basically summarizes "quote unquote" good escape versus "quote unquote" bad escape. So the maladaptive, bad escape is life sucks, so I'm going to play games. The adaptive, beneficial escape is life is better when I have time to play games. And even just that basic mindset can make a big difference. It's kind of the difference between different types of stressors. So you have de-stress, new stress, and eustress, right? Euphoric stress, distressful stress, and neutral stressors. And the euphoric stressors would be like people who willingly and enjoy doing cliff jumping or skydiving or something like that because they enjoy it. They get a euphoric experience. Now, technically, at a physiological and neuroscience level, the brain reacts almost identically to that as it would be if you push somebody off a cliff or a plate or something, right? There's all those hormones, that flush of neurochemistry and stress hormones going on in both the the distress and the euphoric stress. But that attitude and that mindset makes a big difference on whether it's a traumatic experience or whether it was a, an enjoyable experience going on the, the roller coaster, etc. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to me because I've heard the same arguments proffered against uh, even meditation. Is it self-indulgent mm. to just sit for mm. 20 minutes mm. in meditation over half an hour or an hour, whatever you're sitting for in meditation? And of course, the rejoinder is, you know, it makes you a calmer, better, happier person, more connected with you. What, all the positive impacts that meditation has. Uh, I think what I'm hearing from you and what I hear from McGonagall uh, or through you, what I hear McGonagall saying is it depends on the reasoning behind it. If you're, you know, quote unquote, meditating because you don't want to deal with life and reality, uh, that's not necessarily a great thing. If you're using this as a mechanism to become a happier, better, more fulfilled, more connected person, why not? And if it, and if you can get that from a half an hour of, you know, for an hour of playing World of Warcraft, uh, then then do that. Right. And and actually, I have a lot of background in meditation as well, so that's another topic we can go down. But so there's some good neuroscience uh, research about uh, meditation and about screen time with video games. So as a recreational therapist, in the early years of my training. All of my professors were like, screen time is evil, no screen time. I raised my kids without a television in the house, et cetera. These were all professors <laughs> who were retiring from the industry in the early 2000s. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? that you know? So what's come out since then is a couple of things. So first of all, let me talk about the meditation and prayer and what's found to be benefits and where there are benefits and where there aren't benefits. And then I'll talk a little bit about the screen time and what the neuroscience says about that. On the meditation side and prayer side, what has been interesting to find in the research is that just doing meditation and just doing prayer, yes, it helps lower because you're doing breathing, except for PTSD. In some cases with PTSD, it actually can heighten their stress for some people. It depends on the approach that you use, et cetera. But for many people, just doing the breathing exercises, engaging the, the 
um, uh, you know, d disengaging the sympathetic nervous system, engaging the parasympathetic system to get them to calm down and lower the heart rate and lower the stress chemicals is overall a good thing for your body. It helps your immune system. It helps your ability to deal with future stresses. And whether you do it through prayer or like Eastern meditation or progressive muscle relaxation or other methods, they all have roughly the same benefit, except for those people who are kind of triggered by that again in the, in the PTSD realm, uh, of noticing that it affects your overall lifespan. It affects your overall likelihood of mental health issues. It affects your overall uh, social connections depression, all these things have been found that if you're able to engage in a little bit of prayer or meditation in your life, you're less likely to have occurrences of that. If, if what you're saying is increase the parasympathetic nervous system, we're decreasing sympathetic nervous system responses. So in plain English, uh, for everyone playing along at home, we're decreasing your heart rate, we're decreasing your respiratory rate, we're decreasing your blood pressure, we're calming you down, right? You're right, relaxing. Right, right. More of those things are coming into play. We have different brave brainwave patterns right. that come as a consequence. And we've all felt that, that blissful state. Hopefully we have, right? When you're sitting there and, and you're fully contented or you're in the zone and you're checked out a little bit and you feel wonderful. Isn't that exactly the opposite of video games though, Hawk? Because, and hang on, what you yep. said just a few minutes ago I agree. is this vicarious experience you get as a consequence of playing in these video games mimics to a large extent the real life in vivo experiences. There was a great bit of research done, um, uh, appeared in the uh, Journal of Behavioral Psychology back in the uh, early 90s, and I'm, for some reason I'm, I'm forgetting who wrote it. We'll put a link to it on the uh, on the webpage. But this coach decides he's going to look at vicarious learning, and he gets a bunch of kids to uh, come to the basketball court, and maybe you're familiar with it. Half these kids he has throw free throws, and the other half he has sit on the free throw line and visualize. What would it look like to bounce the ball three times, to get your stance, to throw it in the... It turns out the abilities of the first group improves exactly to the same extent as the second group. And so it turns out you're exactly right. Your brain can vicariously learn. You can mimic these behaviors, mimic these experiences as a consequence of engaging them even virtually. And so if I'm in a game right now, I'm not going to mention the game that I currently uh, have started playing because I'm really bad at it and I don't want to give endorsements, but... Uh, my joy in life is riding motorcycles. And so in the middle of winter, you know, I, I don't ride motorcycles as often uh, anymore because now I'm old and, and when I ride in the snow, my wife yells at me. But <laughs> <laughs> so she's fine if I go down to our theater and I play uh, a video game of it. And I'll tell you, it gives me maybe not exactly the same, but man, I, I, I feel the rush. I feel the pressure. You know, it's like being on a, a, a flat track and doing some racing. But we are talking about two different things here. So that's why I wanted to separate them. So the meditation, the prayer, all of that, and the parasympathetic system achieve certain goals that are different than, and I'm not talking about visualization meditation. I'm talking about the relaxation meditation. Because visualization meditation, you're right, that's a whole other topic unto itself. Sure. We can break that into a third topic, but but I'm just focusing right now between the parasympathetic calming relaxation meditation and prayer uh, versus, uh, you know, not doing it, right? Just as far as the effects of that, because you brought that up. Right. 
But, but if that's a desired state, and that's what we want people to be able to achieve through meditation. That is a desired state, but but I but there's an important caveat. Yeah. There's an important caveat with the distinction, some with meditation, but more with prayer, is that with the prayer side, what they found was similar results with people who pray regularly, but there was a differential that that they had to separate over time. They noticed that certain groups didn't seem to have the same benefits as the others who did a lot of prayer. So they had equal amounts of prayer, and you had clusters that stood out of people who had really great benefits, lower heart rate, lower uh, uh, incidence of heart disease, depression, et cetera. But you had other clusters of people who didn't seem to have as much of the benefit. They had some benefit over the general population, but they attributed that more to the support structure of a religious organization. Okay. What they found was whether it was extrinsic or intrinsic. And if they were doing prayer because they were there at church and they had to be at church, I went through Catholic school for five years <laughs> and I had to go to prayer every Friday and in addition to Sunday and all that, and you know, Irish Roman Catholic nuns that still had brogues and still used corporal punishment in the 70s. And uh, <laughs> uh, I was not intrinsically motivated and I was not enjoying the prayer period <laughs> there in church. Uh, you're not going to get the same benefits as somebody who's able to do, you know, the serenity prayer, right? Where you let go of the things you can't control and focus on what you can and all of those benefits. So they started to find those distinctions between meditation versus prayer versus, uh, you know, intrinsically motivated prayer versus extrinsically. If you're doing it in Utah, they have a whole thing with, with uh, the Mormon culture, LDS there, Latter-day Saints. Uh, there's a thing called Jack Mormons, which are, yeah, they're Mormons. They're raised Mormons. They're socially Mormons. They go to church sometimes. Oh, I'm married into it. Yep, Mormon family. Yep, yeah, my 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 first wife was Mormon, <laughs> um, and so uh, that's the whole thing. Well, you don't really see a lot of the benefits of being a member of the church, other than the social structure. You do see that, and that is beneficial. Sure, you do get a lot of support from that structure, but you still saw a lot of the stressors of somebody who didn't have that prayer. So. That's just a couple of distinctions I want to make regarding the meditation, prayer, etc. But let me hold you there for a minute when you're talking about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Yeah. Um, I've argued that there is no such thing really as an extrinsic motivator because at the end of the day, an extrinsic motivator is a proxy for an intrinsic motivator. So money. Hmm. Money is not actually a uh, motivator. Nobody is actually motivated by money. I know everyone who's going to listen to this say, bullshit, I am. No, you're not, actually. You're motivated by what money can do for you. Right. Money serves as a proxy, whether you want, uh, you know, uh, relationships or a, a fun experience or whatever else it is. Uh, money is the medium of exchange. That's really all it is. When we're looking at video games now, uh, in particular, and, and fast forwarding this a little bit, we're seeing that the big push right now is I'm seeing a lot of that same sort of thinking. I'm seeing where there's a shift from the intrinsic motivation of playing the game for the game's own sake to extrinsic motivators. My business partner, Brian, his two girls for Christmas last year, all they wanted were V-Bucks, right? So they could use them in Fortnite. Uh, and I just looked up before we uh, had our conversation today, Fortnite generated last year in their revenues uh, for Epic Games, they generated $5.8 billion with a B dollars. Yes, yes. You know, this has become uh, an, an essential part of the whole online and gaming industry. This has become an essential part of gaming in general. I'll argue, well, not all argue, if you go back to 
to behavioral psychology, to the Skinnerians, right? The people who, who ascribe to B.F. Skinner's way of thinking Skinner, yeah. would essentially contend that really everything we do is for reinforcement, positive and neg negative reinforcement, positive or negative punishment. Yep. Yep. And so really aren't we simply quantifying this? And we were talking earlier about games being essentially a hard activity that uh, – an easy activity that we make hard for – fun, right? And we call it fun. But one of the big factors became keeping score. Well, these V-Bucks or dollars or whatever it is are really just a mechanism for keeping score and vice versa, right? So if we're keeping score and it's just to attain this money, where's really the benefit that we're getting just from the game? Why not just give people money? Right. <laughs> in some places, that's the case. So, you know, there, this brings in a lot of area of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's concepts on flow state and immersion and such. Yep. But also, as I was mentioned about the screen time, in the, the, the there have been half a dozen studies or so in more recent years related to what McGonagall says is do more video games, right? She says, play more video games, do an hour a day. Everybody needs to do an hour a day worldwide, et cetera. Right. And... There have been the half dozen studies that were all separate, but they've all kind of come together. I've come across them so far. They all say roughly the th same thing. Between 30 to 90 minutes or so, it appears that the benefits of a video game, and it doesn't matter if it's Tetris, Mario Kart, Sims Online, World of Warcraft, Battlefield, COD, Fortnite, whatever, 30 to 90 minutes a day, there are developmental issues for younger kids about what games are appropriate, but other than that... Sure. Uh, appears to be the benefits outweigh the deficits. So what are the benefits? Right. So virtually mapping. So as we try to map the world, our experience of the world, like when we're born, we're feeling around and trying to create a map of the world and our body and how our how we move our limbs and all of that mapping. There, there's basic uh, uh, functional skills, the fast twitch, etc. Uh, Mario Kart, you see with mapping in a city and a cart and, a, and, a, and creating literally a map in your own brain. And uh, there's, if there's social games, of course, you've got all the social interaction. So it varies from game to game, the specifics of the benefits. Tetris, you know, fitting things together, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I can see what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense to me because we're not even talking about necessarily the physical. You, you know, without getting too geeky here, mm -hmm. you talk about like Jean Piaget's notion of schema, right? And right, how we're right. using yes. these concepts to get a better understanding of what other aspects of our life mean, which is, is again, and I think you and I would agree, one of the things I really love about McGonagall's work is this notion of, of transferability. Generalization of skills. Where you're not playing the game for the game. Right. This generalizability, generalization skills. Exactly. Yes. The, so these studies all seem to support, if you do half an hour to 90 minutes or so of video gaming of various types, there are various benefits depending upon the games and they outweigh the potential deficits. The potential deficits we're finding through more studies, uh, including a Central Washington study and a few others, where they actually measured like stress hormone levels, obesity rates, you know, from, from being sedentary, uh, uh, those types of negatives that we see with a lot of video gamers, we start to see those negatives start to outweigh the benefits at around two hours. So if you're constantly playing this really intense game, you, you start having high cortisol levels build up, et cetera, and you're not getting up and exercising and eating. and Really interesting to me. Yeah. You know, one of the points that uh, uh, I've always, always been impressed on me, my wife is uh, a nurse, an ICU nurse. I met her back when I was a paramedic. And so mm. we sort of kept a hand in medicine. A lot of 
Some of my best friends are physicians uh, who are not, by the way, for the record, real doctors. They're biomedical plumbers. I'm a real doctor. But uh, in case anyone listening, <laughs> uh, one of the things that strikes me is, and, and and we've talked about this a lot over the year, my wife and I, is virtually any substance, certainly any medication, but virtually any substance becomes toxic or poison too much uh, at different dosages, right? With too much of it, typically. Uh, and it's exactly right. And so what I hear you saying, it's a really cool and interesting way to think about that then. What, what you're saying, what I'm hearing anyway, and correct me when I'm wrong, or not if, when, um, what you're saying is it may not harm me to not play video games, but it will advantage me to play them. Correct. To a point. To a point. And if I pass that threshold, it's almost like taking an aspirin. Right. If I have a, a headache and I take an aspirin or two, that's fine. If I take 200, maybe not so much. Yep. Yeah. It's all thresholds, all of it. And I'm always skeptical of any studies that give absolutes that this is right. an absolute benefit or an absolute deficit. If they don't include some kind of threshold and caveats, I'm very suspicious about the research. So I'm always looking for research that tries to cover that. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, again, not to get too geeky, but that's almost like Karl Popper's notion of falsifiability. If there's no case in which it's not true, then it's not really true. Uh, you have to be able to disprove something also. And so if you could say universally video games are just good for you no matter what, well, that's kind of bullshit. Yeah. Of course there are circumstances. And one of those, though, that I wanted to bring up in this context, um, I would mentioned earlier about escapism. Even McGonagall, she likes to quote this economist, uh, uh, Edward Kestranova, and he said, uh, and this is her quoting him, so me quoting her quoting him, and uh, Kestranova says, we're witnessing what amounts to be no less than a mass exodus to virtual worlds and online game environments. There's something concerning about that. That's what Meta is betting on, and that's what, uh, get, you know, get player one, and yeah. player one assumes the book and, and show movie player one assumes that. It was really poorly done movie. But it was with um, uh, Bruce Willis. I don't know if you remember that one where basically everyone is living through avatars. Yes. And you're hooked in. It's kind of like it's a ripoff of The Matrix, just not very well done, right? Yeah. Right. And, and you become this sort of vegetative thing yeah. that is living through vicariously through this. And do we see that as and, – and I hear you when you're talking about the thresholds. Is that part of the reason we're worried about exceeding those limits? I, you know, I mean, we look at what just happened with COVID yeah. and the isolation that happened. A lot of people retreating to a lot more online experiences and less in-person socialization. I was that first year of it. I was doing a lot of pro bono work for my clients to help them prepare. Because if, if you watch, I was on a show a few years ago during this where I warned everybody back in March this is going to, it takes a minimum two to three years for this type of thing to settle. Plan the longitudinal plan plan three years. If you do that, you'll be better prepared. Don't listen to everybody saying, oh, it'll be a few months. It'll be a few months. Well, according to Donald Trump, it was going to be a, like a miracle. It was going to go away tomorrow. But Well, but everybody, everybody was still saying, and, and even the other therapists in the panel were like, no, 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 don't don't say that. Don't say that. Like, it, it's, deal with it. It's reality. Right. Yeah. And, and so all of my clients I went to, and a lot of them were like, we're in halfway houses or uh, mental health facilities or in transition or just out of, you know, so I went to the higher risk ones or other therapists said, hey, I'm in Seattle, you're in Spokane, could you do, you know, a welfare check on them, things like that. I helped them put together 
programs that would help them stay engaged during however long it took on a kind of a monthly schedule. And they, they fared very well during the, the couple of years that this went on with isolation. Okay, that is so provocative. I, I have to stop us here for a minute. No, <laughs> look, the world is thinking about, and, and frankly, even coming to the conversation, I'm thinking about what are the detrimental effects of too much time in gaming yes. uh, and, and too much time in these virtual worlds. And what you're saying, a little bit mind-blowing here, right, is to be able to give people more of a sense of human connection, we can use these environments. We can use games. We can use a virtual uh, enterprise. We can Let me clarify. I didn't quite say that. So I'm a recreational therapist. Okay. We have a wide range of tools, not just video games. We, we have you know all sorts of other recreational activities. So these are programs that were diverse. They were not based solely on cyber environments. Right. So just to be clear about that, they, this was not an all cyber-based program. And, and nothing's all-encompassing. You and I both agree. Right. But what you're saying is... We can use, right, I, I, before COVID, candidly, I hated video conference. Uh, I've always hated mm -hmm. it. I just, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old guy. And it just never took for me, really. And, and I prefer phone calls, and I much prefer face-to-face. -face. I'm old enough to remember that ad campaign from AT&T when they said long distance. Reach out and touch someone. And I always <laughs> used to say, yeah, the next best thing, right? It's right. I, I, I'm a guy who I literally took a, a plane one time to have an, a meeting in the Frankfurt airport for 40 minutes. And I knew it was going to be 40 minutes. Doesn't matter. I'd rather do that than a phone call or a video call. I'm just that guy. <laughs> um, but what I we saw during COVID, during the pandemic, and I think still are seeing the vestiges of that, is this sense of disconnectedness that people had, mm -hmm. right? The sense of people who were isolating, uh, who were isolated or self-isolating one or the other. And as a consequence, they're limiting human contact. And what you're saying is, we can use these mechanisms as a tool to help people engage in, in actual human experiences. Because mm -hmm. whenever we talk about gaming, I think we talk about leaving the human behind, right? And there, there was this, I'm sure you saw it, there's this episode of the Big Bang Theory and Penny gets into gaming and they're all worried about it because she's living in this virtual world and not living in the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you're saying is it doesn't have to be that way. I hope you've all enjoyed part one of this episode as much as I have. There's a lot to unpack here, and so we're going to return next week for part two. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and CodeLock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai. Protectedby.ai. And CodeLock? CodeLock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, CodeLock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal mouth, end quote. You can learn more about CodeLock by visiting codelock.it, codelock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and CodeLock. 
Tomorrow Today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today.